Welcome, welcome, Balcony. Good to have you guys. If, uh, if, if, if we haven't met, my name's Tony. I have the privilege and honor of being on staff here, uh, the pastoral staff here at Wellspring. I uh, want to welcome you if you're new visiting, checking us out, kind of getting a feel for what, what we care about and who we are. Uh, if, you know, the, this last week, some of you, at least last Sunday, were, I know it took a little time to pray for various things, including one of those was my mom had a significant fall. So thank you for praying for her and for all of those who have brought us meals and watched our kids and really been a family to us. Thank you. That's been really beautiful. Uh, so grateful. Um, and to give myself a moment to cry. Kids, if you want to hang out with other kids, uh, Belinda's over there, Cheyenne's over there, and uh, they would love to spend some time with you. Now, um, if you were with us a few weeks ago, right, the people of God, we, we just started the book of Joshua, so we finished the Torah, we're now in Joshua, and the beginning of Joshua, Joshua sends out some spies into the promised land, they end up in a place called Jericho, and, you know, they're trying to scout things out, figure out what's going on in Jericho, and in the midst of it, you know, Rahab basically intervenes and helps them make it back to camp. And now we're entering chapter 5, which is sort of like the fruit of that exploration when they actually get to overtake Jericho. Now, if you grew up in the church, you likely have some feel for this narrative. I was talking to Aaron the other day. Uh, so I, I didn't really grow up listening to these stories. I had no idea what Jericho was. I'd never heard of Veggie Tales. But Aaron tells me, you know, from his experience that he grew up in the church and he's, he's distinctly, every time he goes back to this story, he thinks of cucumbers and peas marching around Jericho. I haven't seen the episode, but I heard it's lovely. Go check it out. Okay. But what's interesting, if you go to children's Bibles, this VeggieTales story, what you'll notice is the story almost always starts with, like, marching around the city. There's very, very rarely is there the prequel of why they march around the city. That's where I want to start this morning. This is how the biblical narrative begins the story. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. Helpful, yeah. No, but I am a commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face on the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. A few things to just sort of note. First is a pattern, right? In key moments in the biblical narrative, at these key transition moments, often God or a messenger, one of his messengers, like an angel, meets with a biblical character, and this meeting proves really significant. If you recall, in Exodus, right, God meets Moses at a burning bush before sending him into, back to Egypt to rescue his people. And just like with Moses at the burning bush, Joshua is here instructed to remove his sandals because the place is holy. Right? It's not holy because the ground is particularly nice. It's holy because God is there. Second, and as I imagine it, so Joshua, the story says, is sort of looking out over Jericho. He's trying to think, like, so how do we do this? 
Jericho has these huge walls. He's trying to like imagine how are we going to conquer this city? Because if they don't conquer the city, they cannot get into the promised land. And as he's going there, hopefully, you know, trying to maybe do strategic planning, he sees this guy with a sword who later introduces himself as the commander of the armies of the Lord. And he asks this really interesting question, right? Are you with me or them? Obviously, he's standing before Jericho and he's wondering, oh my, if you're on their side, we are in real trouble. But if you're on our side, I don't know, maybe we can take these walls down. What's fascinating is this commander of the armies of the Lord doesn't say, of course I'm for you. Duh, like, I'm here for you, whatever you want. He says, no, I am the commander of the armies of the Lord. Essentially, you're asking the wrong question, Joshua. It isn't whether I'm for you or against you. It's this, right? Are you for me? Are you with me? Are you aligning your life with me? Which side are you on, God? No, no, no. The question is not whether God is on our side. The question is we, whether we are on God's side. Right? Who's in charge? Are we the one giving God the directions of how we're going to live our life? How we're going to take Jericho? Or is God the one saying, listen up, Sonny. This is how we're going to do things. This is really important. It's important in our lives, but it's also important as we move through this narrative. Because what this messenger, who will speak as God in a second, gives are some really weird instructions. So if you don't have that order right, you almost certainly are not going to follow these instructions. If you think God is there to just support whatever you want to do, when he tells you something weird, you're going to be like, "Mm, I thought you were on my side, God. Because this is what God says to him. He's trying to figure out a strategic way to overcome a military obstacle. And the Lord said to Joshua, verse 2, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. The priests shall blow the trumpets, and when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, and everyone straight before him. Joshua wakes up that morning, thinking, you know, he's probably talking by campfires at night, like, guys, how are we going to do this? He's out under the stars, talking to God, how are we going to, how are we going to do this? How are we going to overcome these walls of Jericho? Like, we're just a bunch of wandering people in the wilderness for a wilderness, for a generation, just out of slavery. We are not military geniuses. How do we do this? And then God shows up. And tells him, essentially, verse 2, right? It won't be by your might or your strategy. It will be a gift of God. Verse 2, I have given Jericho into your hand. This verb, have given, right, is in the perfect tense in Hebrew, which means that according to God, it is already 
done. He is not giving it later. Oh, no, no. The gift is given. All you have to do is basically the victory ceremony. Do the victory ceremony and you're good. And the victory ceremony focuses on a daily walk around Jericho till the climax of the seventh day. For six days, they're told to walk around the city once a day, right? And if you're Aaron or grew up on VeggieTales, you imagine cucumbers and peas. <laughs> on the seventh, seventh day, they're supposed to walk around seven times. Now, scholars don't know the exact distances. They think it was probably about a mile and a quarter. So from your pew to Lover's Point, along the water to like that whale statue in the park over there and back here. Once, once a day, right? Get everyone together. The warriors will be in the front, the priests and the ark, and then followed by the warriors. On the seventh day, they'll do just under nine miles, give or take. The priests will blow their horns. The warriors will shout. Essentially, this is the, the end of the victory ceremony. And at this point, right, the walls will fall. It's also interesting, and you might not if this is, I don't think, highlighted in VeggieTales, might not have known that this seven-day period actually overlaps with the seven days of Passover. So right before this incident, uh, Joshua was told that they need to celebrate Passover during these seven days. And this isn't coincidental, right? The seven-day period of Passover is when they remember that God led them fully trapped in slavery, God comes in, defeats Pharaoh, defeats the Egyptian army, frees his people. All the Hebrew people do is basically take a three-day vacation in the wilderness, cross water that's already been parted for them, and then get to the other side. God is the one doing all the work. Right? It's his work, not theirs. By his strength, not theirs. From beginning to end, this is the work of God. That is the story they've been marinating in for this week as they're walking around the walls. Importantly, right, Joshua actually takes seriously these silly instructions given from God. They do their daily walk, right? Mile and a quarter, what is that? A thousand steps, 2,000 steps? Who's like really good at steps around here? 2,500 steps? I don't know, I lose track. Okay. Right, they follow these instructions, and on the seventh day, the text says, on the seventh day they rose early, the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. And it was only on day, that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the text says in verse 20, so the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. This is a crazy story, right? It's why it's like in every children's Bible. It's why VeggieTales made a story of it. You have this picture it's a profound picture of this guy named Joshua who wakes up in the morning. He encounters the messenger of the armies of the Lord. He falls on his face in worship. He listens to his voice. He obeys his instructions. He aligns with God's mission in the world. And it leads to this massive celebration and victory. Amen. 
One of the interesting things about this story, though, is not only is that little beginning part cut off, of like the guy with the sword standing before him, but the end of the story is also sometimes cut off. You see, as we lean into Joshua, the book of Joshua, the conquest of the promised land, there are also some really difficult things that we need to face. Yes, God promises the people this land, and he gives it to them, and it is amazing. These are slaves that want land. They want a place to call their own where they can grow their own vegetables, have their own produce, provide for themselves. And yes, we got to celebrate that God's people listen to God's instructions. They do the victory celebration, and God knocks down the walls. Amen. And yes, Joshua's victory solidifies their entrance into the promised land. It also is like awesome propaganda because now everyone else is like, what? Your God just knocked down the walls just by you playing instruments? Like, and then everyone's terrified, does all those things. But I also skipped over some really important verses at the end. And I want us to kind of lean into some of these because they're very uncomfortable. But I think as a people, if we want to be a people that are faithful to the scriptures, if we want to be a people that are willing to be on God's mission in this world, we actually have to be a people that are willing to wrestle with some of these more challenging questions too. Verse, uh, this is chapter 6, verse 17. This is the instructions he gives to the warriors once the walls fall. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord to dis- for destruction. Only Rahab and the prostitute who are with only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Right. So back in the beginning, Rahab basically makes a deal with them and says, "Save me and my family. I know the Lord's coming. Save us." Right. Now he's faithful to that word. Then verse twenty-one. Then they devoted, right, this is what they actually do. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Pretty intense stuff. And this also isn't something that Joshua just comes up with, right? This actually is grounded in Deuteronomy, right? This is the law given by God on Mount Sinai to Moses and the people, this is one example is Deuteronomy 20, 16 through 18. In the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach to you according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, so you sin against the Lord your God. Okay, so there's some rationale given in Deuteronomy 20, right? And basically, unless you kill everyone, the Hebrew people, they're going to start learning practices and start worshiping other gods. And this quickly is going to go really, really bad. But the thing is, as a pastor, I can tell you, like, you, many of you and many of people that I've met with ask me questions about this. Like, I'm a follower of Jesus. He says to love our enemies. How is it possible that everyone is devoted to destruction here? And then I meet with people outside the church as they're curious about Jesus and they're like, I'm, Tony, you told me to take this book seriously. 
And I am, and now I'm reading this, and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? You told me that God was gracious and compassionate. Yes, he's, he judges sin, but, but this? Right, you're a follower of Jesus, maybe. Or maybe you're attending today, and you're wondering, what is this God like? Or maybe you're sharing the gospel with people in your workplace or your life, and you're wondering, what do I do with stuff like this? So what I want to do right now is I want to actually invite Aaron up, and we're just gonna we're gonna do a quick Q and A around how do we make sense of the conquest of Canaan, and then what we're gonna do you can why don't you grab that one, and then what we're gonna do uh, in two weeks Aaron's gonna do a seminar on this because we want to be a people where you're actually wrestling with this stuff, so we're gonna lean into it. We're not gonna skip that page. We're gonna lean into it. And then also I want to say, if you're curious after the service and you want to talk to Aaron more, he'll be around. You can ask him questions. All right. What do we do with this? <laughs> we, go from, we go from veggie tales to this. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that wasn't in veggie tales, <laughs> yeah. tell you that much. Yeah. There you go. Well, I think the, a couple of things just to kind of start us off here. I think the first thing is, is that in one sense, there's no easy answers. So as much as we, you know, I want to study and learn and, you know, not gloss over this, at the end of the day, I still have a little bit of tension in my own body as I kind of wrestle with uh, some of these passages. So I say that as we go over these next few minutes, don't expect to be, oh, you cleared it up for me or, you know, problem solved, you know, by the end of the day. So that's not what I'm trying to do uh, right now. But I think a couple Wait, things. Let me just, so just as a, just note that. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to feel uncomfortable. It's okay in your body to have a little bit of, I'm not sure I like this, right? Aaron has studied these passages probably more than any of us. It's okay if you have that, right? I think that's part of discipleship. That's part of learning to trust even when we don't have the answers. Okay, sorry. No, that's perfect, perfect. Aaron's used to this. On cutting room floor, we do this <laughs> all the time. Go back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of things, maybe just to kind of organize this. There's, I think, three details I'd like to mention that sometimes we kind of gloss over or maybe forget about with these kinds of passages. So three details, and then I want to also talk about four paradigm shifts that we can have as we approach not only Deuteronomy and Joshua, but a lot of these other passages as we kind of keep going throughout the Old Testament. So kind of three details to start. The first one is this idea of devote. Tony just read Deuteronomy 20 and then also Joshua 6. And in those passages, the scriptures have something to the effect of whether it's command or Joshua saying it himself, that they are to devote to complete destruction. You know, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, so on and so forth. And what's interesting is that this word devote is actually one of those words that kind of gets debated and talked about quite a bit, depending on who you talk to in biblical studies, so on and so forth. And what's also interesting is that this isn't something where you have to necessarily know Hebrew to even kind of have your radar pop that, hey, something else is going on in the text. If you have a New American Standard Version of the text, you'll have a footnote that says, or has like an asterisk next to the word devote, and it kind of look down at the bottom of your page and also have like the explanation, this word devote also means to put under the ban. And you're like, well, what does that mean? That's not all that helpful either. Well, that, again, this gets at to the nature of what does it mean for Israel to devote or to put under the ban these other people groups? And so someone like John Walton from Wheaton will kind of make the case that what's going on here is that Israel is being called to bring to order a situation that is full of order. 
So Israel going to the promised land, there's all this disorder, all these practices, all these different things that these Canaanites, these different people groups are doing that's very disorderly. It's against the design and purpose and will of God. And Israel's call is to, the, the Hebrew roots harem, is to devote or put under the ban or to bring to order all of the disorder that's happening in the promised land so that it can be rightly used and enjoyed in a way that honors God. So let me just clarify. So disorder, don't imagine your bedroom or your kitchen. Oh, there's a little disorder there. We're talking like sin practices that are destructive. This isn't like, sometimes I think in our modern age, we think that, uh, you know, all people groups are like neutral as long as they don't have tons of power. But like the, our theology of sin is that all people sin, right? And that there's, there's a theology of sin that all people, all cultures, all places have sin. And there are some really, I mean, we're not going to get into it right now, but there's some really gnarly stuff that these people groups are doing uh, that God wants to address. Sure. So disorder, not kitchen, but like sin practices that are destructive and hurting people. For sure. And saying bring them to order doesn't necessarily mean that Israel has to kill these people. So I think that's kind of the main takeaway for this point here. Now, I'm not saying that Israel did not kill anyone. I, I think you just read through the text. It seems pretty obvious that some killing did take place. But by necessity, it doesn't, necess it doesn't necessitate this harem word or devote word, meaning that Israel had to do these sorts of things. There's other ways that Israel could and often did bring order to disorder in these uh, situations. That's kind of the first little okay. detail. So maybe just quick summary is that means the, the text isn't necessarily saying that every single man, woman, and infant was killed. For sure, for sure. And I'll get to that in one of the four paradigm shifts in a second. But that's kind of, just pay attention to that, devote to complete destruction. There's something more going on there than we often think kind of going in the English language a bit. The second little detail is we forget about God's crazy, crazy patience through this whole narrative. So all the way back in Genesis 15, we were told that Abraham was going to not actually get to see the promised land himself, but it would be generations later. It'd be about 400 years after the time of Abraham that Abraham and, or his descendants would actually get to inherit the promised land. Why? Because according to Genesis 15, the sins of the Amorites or the sins of the Canaanites had not reached its sort of full blossom or full potential, if you will. And meaning this, that God has been extremely, extremely patient with these people groups, with all of their vile and horrific practices that they've been doing for centuries. And I think for us, especially modern people, when we think about, you know, all the atrocities that we read about on the news or globally that are even happening right now, for someone to give centuries worth of patience would actually be considered like, that's not actually a good thing. We would, we would like push against that and be like, we have to have justice even sooner. And so this gets at the, really the, huge concept in throughout scripture of God's extreme patience, even with those, and especially with those that we might not agree with or get along with. And this is exactly what's happening here from Genesis all the way through the Torah and into the Old Testament, is that God has been extremely patient with these people groups. You know, this is child sacrifice. There's all sorts of vile and grotesque things that they're doing. But it comes to a point in time where God says enough is enough. And so one of the key things to remember is that God has been patient all this time, 400 plus, plus years, and now Israel is, now through the book of Joshua, going to go into the promised land. So you're just saying we need to be careful to disconnect specific events from the larger narrative of the scriptures. For sure. 
Like, this takes place within a larger story and scripture and arc. For sure, for sure. And again, I'm not saying that this totally eases up everything no. and kind of solves all our there problems. There still is judgment. There still is there judgment. There still is like a real thing. But we're talking about how, how much does it make you want to throw up after? Yeah, for sure. I'm serious. Like, there is a certain level of like, that's horrendous. And now you're saying, okay, let's put this in a little more... A, f- a different frame. A different okay. frame and just getting the broader perspective. Kind of the third detail I'd like to mention is that sometimes the Canaanite conquest and the passages in Joshua and the Judges to a certain degree get kind of labeled as something like this is genocide or this is ethnic cleansing. And I would really want to push against that and say this is not what's happening. This is not, you know, God through Israel kind of going around just doing an ethnic cleansing of all these different ethnicities or people groups in the land. How do we know this? Well, you just read the text. Because it's not based on ethnicity, it's based to faithfulness to Yahweh. So think about Joshua chapter 2 with the story of Rahab. Rahab is a Canaanite. She's not exterminated, she's not killed because she is faithful to Yahweh. Next week, Tony's going to teach on the story of Achan. Achan, he's an Israelite, and he is not faithful to Yahweh, and the judgment of God comes upon him and his family. You go on to the rest of the story, Caleb, who's essentially number two in the leadership of Israel at this point. So Joshua and Caleb, they go together. Caleb, we read throughout the biblical story, he is a Kenizzite. And he's one of those, well, the Kenizzite is one of those ites that you just kind of read about and like you read through them really fast and pretend like you know what you're saying. A Kenizzite was one of the people groups in Canaan that Israel was called to, quote, devote to complete destruction. So inherently within Israel's leadership is a, quote, bad guy, but not a bad guy because he's faithful to Yahweh. Later on in the biblical story, David and Bathsheba, remember who Bathsheba's husband was? Uriah the what? The Hittite. The Hittites being a part of the Canaanite group. So one of David's prime commanders, if you will, was one of these people or from one of these people groups. So all I'm trying to say is that it's a little more complex than if you are part of these ites, you're automatically being exterminated or being hunted down. That's not what's happening in the text. All throughout the story of Israel, there's an invitation for anyone and everyone to come and be a part of what God is doing uh, through Israel, and we see that throughout the, the yeah. narrative. And we even see this when they're rescued out of uh, slavery in Egypt, right? They actually include Egyptians and other foreigners into the group that's, that's saved in that, in that season. So this is like a normal part of the narrative, and you see it really in full, full bloom as you get into the New Testament. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So those are kind of three small details just to kind of keep in the back of our heads as we kind of look at the story of Joshua and into the book of Judges. Now, four kind of, these are a little bit broader, more four paradigm shifts, if you will, for us to think about with these conquest-type passages. The first one is simply this, is that sometimes we think of, or at least I sometimes do, picture Israel being like this strong, mighty army going to attack these, like, weak, you know, insignificant sort of people groups, sort of this major, you know, massive army to this weak, you know, sort of natural inhabitants of the land, if you will. And that's exactly the opposite of what we actually see throughout Scripture, is that this is not the the strong versus the weak as far as Israel's perspective, but it's actually the weak versus the strong, oppressive empire, if you will. So Jericho's walls, remember, they're the one in the fortress. These are a bunch of second-generation slaves without a home in the wilderness coming against a fortified city and a people group that they're terrified of. Yeah, for sure. So this is not a national superpower in like our modern language attacking some sort of colony or tribe out in some distant land. This is almost the exact opposite. This is a small, weak tribe. All throughout the book of Deuteronomy in particular, God says it's not because of your strength 
or anything, you know, inherently amazing about you, why I chose you, is actually because Israel was weak and that they were kind of alone and poor that God reached out to them. And it is through this poor, weak sort of clan, if you will, Israel, that God is going to confront the evil and oppressive empires of the day, namely these Canaanites. Uh, Joshua Ryan Butler in his uh, highly recommend his book, The Skeletons in God's Closet, has this line where he says, Israel is storming Fort Knox with a water pistol. And so the basic idea is that, again, it's the weak versus the strong, and that God is arising on behalf of the weak against the tyranny of the strong, as the strong has raged far, for far too long. And so here we see God using the weak things of the world. Again, this is you know, New Testament theology here at this point. The weak things of the world to confound the, the strength and the wisdom of the world. So that's the first sort of paradigm yeah. shift okay. that we'd like to talk about. Uh, the second one is, I kind of just label it, ridiculous war strategies. This is kind of piggybacks off of the first thing I just mentioned. But as you read through the Torah, and in particular early on back in Exodus 23, we actually read that the initial instructions were for Israel to let God do the work of driving out the Canaanites. And the way that God was going to, or Yahweh was going to drive out the Canaanites was through this kind of mysterious sort of hornet or this group of hornets. And you're like, well, what does that even mean? And people will debate that in the seminar. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But it seems like there's these crazy sort of war strategies that God had given Israel to abide by or listen to. Namely, these insects coming through to ravage sort of the land is, is the first one. You have instances like what we just read with Joshua in the book, in, or in Jericho in the book of Joshua, where Israel is marching around the city and having like a worship night or whatever, or worship day. And like, how does that sort of any sort of military strategy in any way, shape, or form? Uh, there's a, kind of all these different things, like so trumpets, all these weird ways of, quote, doing battle. And it just kind of paints this picture of something else is perhaps going on here. That perhaps it's not just this complete, like, go ahead and just slaughter everybody, and this is an all-out sort of war, how we might think of war, or we might perceive ancient war in ancient times or anything along those lines. All right, so that's one and two, two Three more. and two. And the third one is this language of drive out versus total kill. Now, when you read through, again, these conquest passages, you'll come across a ton of language of this language of Israel is called to drive out the Canaanites. And you'll also come across language where it does say things to the effect of Israel is to totally kill the, the Canaanites, so on and so forth. But the point I want to make here is that people way smarter than me have made this point is that the language of drive out and those sorts of passages which don't necessitate killing and the language of total kill, the drive out language outnumbers the total kill language at a ratio of about three to one. So the point is this, is that the primary command that Israel is given is to drive out these inhabitants, not, necess not, necess not necessarily, necessarily there you go. to totally kill. We'll help you. There yeah, we're go, here right? for you. I can't yeah. pronounce words today. Does that sort of make sense? That sort of paradigm there. Yeah, it's good. And again, I'm not saying that this totally solves all our problems, but the main command is that, again, this kind of gets at the language of this is Yahweh's land that he's given to Israel, and that he, Israel is called to drive out these inhabitants. And it's also kind of piggybacking on this, is that this is not sort of Israel getting licensed to just go out and start chasing these people beyond the borders of the promised land. Israel had very strict and very, we would even say, like progressive sort of kind of war commands for their sort of own culture. They're not just to go out and start conquering all these lands way out in the middle of nowhere, so to speak. This was meant specifically just for the promised land, just for a particular place, just for a particular time, and was not to be extended beyond this specific time frame and not extended beyond a specific, this specific land region yeah. at all. And it's certainly not a call for us. 
100%. Yeah. yeah, okay. For sure. And the last one? And the last one, I think this is actually pretty important, and I just kind of phrase this as ancient trash talk or ancient locker room talk. Now, <laughs> and if you've been in a locker room, you know immediately what he's about to say. So all of this language that, you know, Tony just read a few of these passages, it'll come up again as we keep going through some of these stories, is that you have this language of, like, slaughter every man, woman, and child, completely annihilate them, completely destroy them. You'll even have Joshua in Joshua chapter 10 as he's kind of recounting all of the things that have happened up till this point in Joshua 10, about halfway through the book, of how Joshua will say things like, we have completely taken over all the land. We've completely wiped them out. We've completely destroyed them. And then you read a chapter or two later and you're like, there's still people here. Or you get to Judges chapter 1 and no less than eight times in Judges chapter 1 are you told that Israel has not conquered everybody in the land. That there's still people there. And you keep reading on through the rest of the story, and they'll say things like, we slaughtered them all, we killed them all, so on and so forth. And then a few chapters later, those same people groups or that same land, there's still people there. Now, what scholars do is they look at this, and they go, and they compare also other sort of ancient Near Eastern war stories and, you know, war accounts. And they notice this very similar pattern of when someone would go in and have a battle and gain a victory, they would often kind of over-exaggerate. And this isn't like lying or anything like this. I'll give a modern example in a moment. But what they would do is that they would exaggerate their win, they would exaggerate their victory as a way of declaring that, you know, they totally stomped them. They totally, you know, beat them or, or whatever. It's kind of like, so on October 3rd, the Seahawks and the 49ers are going to play. And we know how that's going to turn I'm out. I'm hoping to be able to say that the Seahawks completely destroyed the 49ers, right? And it's this, like, <laughs> we have one Seahawks joke here. Boo. Right? Yeah, feel free. There are times it's appropriate to boo, yeah. But there's, there's, this, there's this language all throughout Scripture, and we use this too, right? Like when a, your team, like, beats another team in sports, like, we completely destroyed them. We completely, you know, annihilated them. We're not saying in that moment that we, like, literally, you know, killed them or anything like that. And so what's happening here is that throughout Joshua and these, you know, other conquest passages is that what's being talked about is not, you know, literally every man, woman, and child was being killed. In fact, we know from archaeology, and we know just from the text itself, is that even cities like Jericho primarily would have been military cities, very small, so don't think like, you know, San Francisco or even something like PG. Tony even just kind of gave sort of the parameters a little bit. You're talking about a small, fortified military city with primarily men and primarily warriors here. And so this language of every man, woman, and child is just sort of stock language in the ancient Near Eastern culture of going after and taking over and having this amazing victory without necessarily wiping out every single thing that breathes. Does that That's kind good. of make sense? Super helpful. And so I think those sorts of things, more or less, again, doesn't solve all our problems, but I think, you know, charts a course a little bit. In the right That's direction. good. So super helpful. If you want to talk to Aaron more, he'll be around, but also the seminar, like this is the 10-minute the version He'll give the 90-minute version, and there'll be a lot more room for questions, those kind of things. Thank you. Um, so what I want to do is I'm not going to dive super deep into that stuff. Let's let Aaron's seminar do that. What I want to do is go back to the story itself and then sort of riff on, so how does that relate to us? Now, it's pretty clear, you know, we do not have the directive to completely destroy or put the ban on or those kind of things. So how does this story relate to us? And there are two things in particular I want to highlight. The first is this connection between listening and the mission of God. 
Remember Joshua, right? He goes out in front of the city and he's trying to figure out like, how do we fulfill God's mission? Right, and the commander of the army of the Lord comes up to him and he's like, are you with me? And the guy's like, no, you know? The question is, are you with me? Right, and then he gives them this ridiculous war strategy, literally marching around a military establishment with, I don't know, flutes and trumpets and voices. And yet, it is through listening to the voice of God that Israel is able to move forward in the mission of God. And the truth is, when you actually fast forward to the New Testament, Aaron referred to this, right? Paul will write later in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose a bunch of people walking around a military establishment with trumpets to shame the powerful. Right? God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Right? And what we see here is there's this question before the people of God, before Joshua and the other Hebrews, right? Will they listen? Will they trust? God is calling them on a mission. Will they obey? <coughs> Sorry, I got a little tickle in my throat. Obviously, God is not calling us to walk around the peninsula, you know, with instruments. You're welcome to try. Feel free. Take a video. I'd love to see it. Instead, I think he calls us to align with him, right, on his mission as he draws people to himself, right? Nine times out of ten, he doesn't call us to another city or another country. He calls us to be his witnesses in our spheres of influence, to be his faithful presence, right? on our block, in our workplace, in our class, in our families. When I was in, living in Silicon Valley, I had a friend who really wanted to be a missionary in China. And he was like, yeah, I can't wait till God calls me. You know, and I talked to him like, you know, it was, I, you know our friendship, we talk about this maybe once a year and like five years later. I was just like, man, so are you just like waiting for this future time to be like, a witness of God's presence, because I'm pretty confident there are tons of people around you every single day that don't know Jesus. Do you think that God is just inviting you to be this presence when he sends you to China? And he was on this forever holding pattern, waiting for the call. When I think, in fact, God was inviting him to be his faithful presence wherever he went. I remember the story of Rahab we talked about a few weeks ago. If you remember it, right? The spies show up. And it's not through their amazing articulation of God and who he is that Rahab's like, oh my gosh, you're so convincing. God was already at work in her heart and in her mind before they even entered her tavern. Right? He was convicting her. And the truth is, in our spheres of influence right now, God is already at work. He is already wooing himself, people to himself. And the question is whether we will align with what God is already doing in the world. A few questions come to mind. First is this, like, do we have a practice of listening to God? Right, the mission of God starts with listening. 
Right? It was God's word to Joshua that established his approach at Jericho. Right? Are we inviting or are we listening to how God is, how God is inviting us right, to be on his mission in our spheres of influence? Right? When you read the Bible, are you listening for God's voice to you, his invitation for how you can love your neighbor, your family member, your schoolmate, or are you just amassing Bible trivia? Are you taking the time in the midst of your day, work, parenting, school, to say, all right, God, who around me are you wooing to yourself? How can I be a part of that process? Now, this second one is intimately connected to listening, but it's also just like, are we, are we praying? Right? Do we pray? Right? When God says, oh, I want you to focus here, are we then praying for those people that he gives us? I really want you to love this neighbor. I really want you to love this classmate, this coworker, this person in your family. One tool that I have like at both the entrances is this little card. It's just a little bookmark. It says pray for five. Like, what if you just wrote those people's names down? As God was speaking, you wrote the names down and you just, each day, you just wrote that name of that person who maybe hasn't experienced much of Jesus in a while and you're just praying for him. And you're saying, God, what do you want me to do today? How are you moving in this person's life today? God, what does it look like to align as you woo this person to yourself? I know it's not about me, it's about you. How can I participate? Are we praying for those people? Those places of pain, those places of struggle. And then three, you know, what gets in the way? What gets in the way for you? Is it slowing enough, down enough to actually listen? Oh God, you, you're actually wanting me to listen to what you want me to do. You're not wanting me to just set my own agenda and go for it. Or is it prayer, like we just sort of, God says it and then we forget about it and we don't st- keep on praying for that person, that place. Or is it, at some point, God tells us what to do, but what he says makes us uncomfortable. Walk around Jericho, blowing an instrument, while there's archers or somewhere, you know, on the top. Like, have a good walk, and you're like, no way. Where do you get stuck? A while back, I had this experience. Um... I needed to study for a test, and so I went to a coffee shop, and while I was at the coffee shop, I ran into this guy who uh, was at my gym, and I, I felt this nudge of the spirit, like, go talk to him. I was like, oh, this is so awkward. Like, just this big yoke dude, and I'm this skinny little guy walking up to him, like, hey, I think we go to the same gym, you know? <laughs> He's like, you work out, you know? <laughs> oh, I do, I show up, you know? And this one time, right, I, I kind of summoned the courage. I don't always, but this time I, I did it. I was like, you know, I think we go to the same gym. And just literally out of nowhere, he reaches under his, um, under the table, and he, he actually pulls out, he pulls out his Bible. He says, last night I started reading this book. Can you explain it to me? (laughs) 
And then I'm like, you know, trying to pick my jaw up off the ground. And he says to me, and what does it mean that Jesus died for my sins? Now, I did my best. Uh, He didn't like, you know, fall on the ground and like commit his life to Jesus in that moment. We had a good conversation and, um, you know, and we stayed in touch. I don't know where he is at this moment, but what's clear to me from this story, what sort of was lodged deep in me at that moment is that God is at work in people's lives when we have no idea. For me, it was just a guy sitting in a coffee shop that I maybe knew from the gym. For him, it was a moment to ask a question of dire import. And was I willing in this moment to partner with all the work God had already done to do my small little part in the story? I guess I just ask that because are we willing? Are we willing to listen and pray? And are we willing to take those little risks of faith that might feel awkward to us walking around a military establishment with musical instruments, but really it's aligning with the will and the plan of God in the world? In my experience, I often find that people get stuck at that place. Like God's like, do this, and you're like, this is so awkward. Or we get stuck on hard questions, like the conquest of Canaan, and we're like, who am I to answer these kind of questions? Right? We feel like we need to be the expert. I know I've felt this before, and I'll tell you this. Every time I have felt like I needed to be the expert, it has put so much pressure on me that it's actually undermined my influence. Because in that moment, what I start to pretend to be is God versus a creature that's trying to be faithful to God, and I'm trying to have every answer to say, this is what it is. Sometimes we don't have all those answers. So like my friend who wanted to be a missionary in China, we sit in this waiting pattern. And I guess as I've thought about this, uh, I just want to reframe a little bit because I think there's this question that sort of haunts us when it comes to God's mission in the world. And it's this question, right? Is a witness an expert? Right, if God is speaking to me, if God is calling me, does that mean I need to know every single little thing? I just want to say really clearly, no. I've found three approaches to be really helpful, three principles. Because the thing is, God is speaking to us. God speaks and he invites us to be on his mission as he woos people to himself. And he's calling you and me. He doesn't say, PhDs, you know, I send you into the world to be my witnesses. Matthew 28, does he? No, he calls doubting worshipers. Read the context. These are, there's doubters and there's worshipers. And he says, all of you, go. Three principles. First is this. I've come to really realize that I don't need to be an expert. What I do need to be, though, is a storyteller. Right, my role is to tell stories of God's faithfulness. And I just want to know, like, if someone asked you tomorrow, why do you trust Jesus? Do you have two to three stories you could tell? 
I don't care about your ideas. Ideas are great. Stories are going to be way more powerful. Stories often precede ideas. People want to hear stories of why you believe. And then maybe they'll listen to your ideas. Do you have two to three stories you can think of right now? Why you trust Jesus? If you don't, I think that's the first step. Why do you trust him? Why do you show up this morning? Why do you sing songs? Do you have two to three stories? And I just want to say quite clearly, like, if you grew up in the church and you're like, well, I wasn't a heroin addict. I don't have this crazy conversion story. I guess I don't have any good stories. That is a lie. I mean, I'll just go live real quick. Um, this won't be as polished. Not that it's ever that polished. But, um, right, so the last week of my life. Why do I trust Jesus? Last Friday, my mom has this horrendous fall. She's in the ICU. And it's terrible. Her brain is bleeding. We're wondering, what, what's going to happen? Why do I trust Jesus? You know, about 20 years ago, in my 20s, my mom had some really serious health problems. It was brutal, brutal. Imagine being in your early 20s and you're the primary caregiver for your mom. You're not sure she's going to live. You're in and out of the hospital. It's just devastating. I didn't have the emotional, spiritual capacity to handle it at all. So for the last like 15 years, every time I go into a hospital, I have fear and anxiety. Friday, you know, I get this call. It's supposed to be on my Sabbath. I rush back. And I'm praying like, oh, God, I can't do this. Why do I trust Jesus? Because when I stepped into that hospital, it was the first time in like 15 years that I wasn't afraid. Because of the work that Jesus has done in my life and in my heart, I was able to be in that place without fear. Why do I trust Jesus? When I was in high school, when I was in my 20s, I was always self-reliant. Right, when I grew up, I thought the only way to do life is you do it on your own and you don't trust people. You just do it your way. Being with Jesus, I've learned that there's a family of people that love me. Why do I trust Jesus? Because this last week, I had a whole community of people. I had people coming to my house and watching my children while I was just sad and a little depressed and grieving. Why do I trust Jesus? Because people showed up at my house with food when Jeannie and I were just overwhelmed. We need to be storytellers. That's just my week. It's not my life. But I can guarantee you, if someone asks you why you trust Jesus and you give them an honest answer, not only are you going to get trust, they're going to really hear your heart. And then they might listen to your ideas. Do you have two to three stories from your life about why you trust him? Second thing I've come to realize is that I don't need to have all the answers. I can actually learn with people that are asking me questions. 
often when I'm meeting with someone who's not a part of the church, secular friend, and they're like, Tony, I don't understand this. Can you explain it to me? Regardless of whether I know an answer, I will say, oh man, let's learn about it together. You know why? If I give them that answer in that moment, what they're going to do is say, okay, that kind of answers my question. If I say learn with me, now they're going to read. Now they're going to explore. Now they're going to actually start seeking. I can almost guarantee you, you know, 99.9 times out of 100, you're not going to show up and the person's going to pull a Bible out of their thing and be like, explain it to me. Almost always, someone needs to trust a Christian first. Second, they need to actually start seeking before they will listen to your answers. If you can get them on the process of learning with you, you're already halfway there. Now you can start learning together. Then you can bring up a question that you can then explore next. You don't have to have all the answers. Following Jesus, right, starts with often trusting a Christian, second, seeking, and once someone is seeking the way, they're more likely to accept Jesus as the way and truth and life. Third, I've also realized I can study too. Right? This doesn't have to be just a passive process. I can also read books and learn, you know. Aaron is like models this well for us. Like you can also read. There's tons of information out there that we can digest when it comes to these hard questions. Anselm has this uh, great quote. He, 1100s theologian, he says this. Theology is faith seeking understanding. Anselm says theology is faith seeking understanding. Are we a people who are willing to seek understanding for ourselves too? All right, so broadly, God is calling us to join him. He's calling us to join him on his mission. He's speaking to us. He's inviting us to pray. He's inviting us to take some risks. He's inviting us to be storytellers. He's inviting us to be learners. He's inviting us to include other people in that process of learning. But I think as we enter worship, where I want to land is right at the beginning of Joshua 5. The beginning of Joshua 5. Joshua's looking out over the city as you and your minds right now are looking out over your sphere of influence. You're wondering, you know, what's, who's in my workplace? Who's in my school? Who's in my family? Who's on my street? He's wondering what's going to happen, right? And then God shows up, and what's the first thing he does? He falls on his face and worships God. And it's from that posture of humility, falling on his face and worship, that he hears God's instructions, that God speaks. I want to invite the worship team up. Because what we're going to do now is we're going to turn back to the one who speaks. We're going to turn back to the one whose mission it is. Right? Not mine, not yours, but God's. And we're going to worship him. And you're welcome to fall on your face. You're welcome to get on your knees. You're welcome to stand up and put your hands in the air. I don't mind how you do it. But let's enter into his presence. Let's see what he has to say. I invite you to just stand with me as we enter worship. God, you are good. 
You are holy. You are patient. You are kind. And yet, God, you also have a purpose, a mission. You have something for us to do in the world. You invite us to partner with you. Can we just say, this is not our kingdom. This is not our world. This is not our earth. And at the deepest level of being, these are not even our lives. They're yours, God. Cultivated, shaped, and formed by you. And God, we say they are yours. Thank you, Lord.